I've called this morning's message, The Christian's Secrets of a Happy Life. In truth, there is more than one secret given here in the verses we read earlier, and they all come straight from the mind and heart of the Apostle Paul. Now, as we begin, let's be honest. The Apostle Paul was not writing these just to give us some self-help. That wasn't his objective. He's not some ancient equivalent of Anthony Robbins, or uh, he was not uh, Dr. Phil of old. No, Paul writes in his letters that are contained in the New Testament, Paul writes, of course, to introduce his readers to the marvelous mysteries of God as revealed through God's Son, the God-man Jesus. But in the process of this, he often has something to say about the human condition. In the verses we read from 1 Timothy, Paul addresses his young protege, Timothy, with respect to Timothy's pastoral responsibilities. In fact, 1 Timothy and its companion, 2 Timothy, are both called pastoral epistles because he writes them to Timothy, who is serving as a pastor, and he's giving him pastoral advice. But this advice is really nothing more than would be appropriate for all Christians or any Christian. Paul uses personal language and speaks almost in a fatherly tone. Very early in the life of the church, these letters came to be circulated among the churches. Though they were written to Timothy, the churches found them to be wonderfully beneficial to themselves, and they passed these letters to Timothy around to other churches because every Christian was blessed by what Paul said. So, we today benefit from Paul's expressions of concern to young Timothy so many years ago, but his words are appropriate to us as well. So, today, we too allow these ancient words of the revered apostle to take root in us and with them to bring, as it were, the secrets of happiness. Now, to get the most out of this text, we need to pay close attention and proceed almost phrase by phrase, although I will spare you that kind of detail. But Paul desires for Christ's followers to pay attention because he has something noteworthy to say about life in Christ. He says that we should 
be godly, of course. Who would imagine otherwise? But he links this godliness with contentment. Paul knows a thing or two about contentment. He has prized it in his own life. From a prison cell, he wrote words to the Philippian Christians saying, I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His statements about contentment are particularly apropos, I believe, for us today. We have so many different agencies all assigned the responsibility of help, uh, helping us be discontented with the way things are. Commercials are exactly that, aren't they? They are designed to say to us, you don't have what you need, and if you only had this, then you would have what you need. But if you lack this, you can't hope to be happy. In essence, isn't that what they tell us? How many of you get more phone calls than you care to think about from somebody saying, if you had a lower interest rate, you could be happy. Oh, they don't say it in those words, but that's what they mean. Or they say, your car warranty is about to expire. <laughs> we live in a time when it seems the objective of our culture to make us aware that we should be discontented. But countering that, Paul says, Christian, be content. Pair contentment with godliness. And although Paul doesn't say this is the secret of happiness, he does say, I've learned this secret, and the secret is contentment. He goes on to expound on this concept. He says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can certainly take nothing out of it. A Spanish proverb years ago remarked that there are no pockets in a shroud. We can't take anything with us. We know that, don't we? Some humorist more recently said, have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? We don't take things with us. Paul says, be contented. 
If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Someone observed, someone who can't be content with little can't be content with much. Contentment brings peace. We learn to rest within ourselves. Now, I think this needs to be said. Paul is not advocating that we not try to make our lives better. He's not saying just accept whatever comes and don't try to do anything about it. He's not saying ambition is bad. Uh, However, it can be. He goes on to talk about material things. These are not bad, but they can be. He goes on to talk about money. Money's not bad, but it can be. So we Christians live in this tension of living with things and among things that can be bad for us if our attitudes get out of kilter. A therapy site online says this about contentment. Contentment means to be happy with what you have, with who you are, and where you are. It is respecting the reality of the It is appreciating what you do have where you are in life. Contentment does not mean the absence of having no ambition. It means that you are satisfied with your present and you trust that the turns of your life will be for the best. Kristen mentioned earlier in the service that at the end of the service, we are going to recognize Lynn Fields. Lynn's life is a picture of contentment. Forty years she has been here. Forty years our secretary I was in grade school. (laughs) No. No. But we celebrate that kind of contentment. Paul also says to be content with material things. In fact, we can be honest enough to admit that the stuff we own more often than not doesn't add to our contentment, it detracts from our contentment. My wife couldn't be here this morning because we had a a granddaughter uh, during the night Uh, become ill with a 103.5 degree fever. 
Our son was out of town. Our daughter-in-law called and said, can you help with, our, with, with their other daughter? So Connie spent the night with them and she's not here this morning. And I say all of that because if she were here, I would have more trouble saying this. <laughs> because she is quite aware that my stuff adds to discontent. Uh, certainly to her discontent. I present my garage as Exhibit A. We can get our car in half of our garage. I consider that success. The other half is what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I collect things. And I have this problem in that I have a vivid enough imagination that I see something that by right should be pitched. But I say, I can use this. I can salvage this. Now the problem is, I have so many things that I'm trying to salvage, I can't find anything. I can't find, even when I want to salvage something, I don't know where it is. And the stuff that I have contributes to other stuff because there are times, I hate to admit this, there are times I know I have something, but I can't find it. So I have to buy another one because I can't find it. And it simply adds to the stuff that I have. Are you with me? I'm not asking for testimonials, but surely I'm not the only person who has this problem. Okay, so stuff adds to the potential of our discontent. Paul says it. As a result of my sermon, not my preaching it, but my preparing it, I am prepared to make a large donation to Love, Inc., if, if they will take it. <laughs> I end up with stuff that complicates my life. There's a time when we are rightly in the acquiring mode. Early in adulthood, when we are getting established, or when we have young families, it's essential that we gather things together. As we anticipate the future, we expect to need certain things as we plan ahead. But there also comes a time, often later in life, when we see the value of letting things go turning loose of what we have collected. We call it downsizing. As a familiar passage in Ecclesiastes puts it, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. 
a time to gather together, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. In speaking of contentment, Paul moves seamlessly into instructions about money and material things. Opposing contentment is greed and the desire for riches and the accumulation of material things. This is a great temptation, he says, for many Christ followers, and they often fall into financial traps. They sacrifice their freedom to do what they would like to do because debt keeps them with no choice. They can't do what they want to do because they have to pay for what they've already bought. Paul says they become trapped by their wants. He calls these harmful desires that, quote, plague them into ruin. Now, like most other things, debt has its place. It's a good servant, but a terrible master. I like what William Barclay says at this point. He says, it is not that Christianity pleads for poverty. There is no special virtue in being poor and no happiness in having a constant struggle to make ends meet. But Christianity does plead for two things. He says it pleads for us to realize that it is never in the power of things to bring happiness. And Christianity also pleads for us to concentrate on the things that are permanent, the things we can take with us in the end when we die. And what do we take with us? We take only ourselves and our relationship with God through Christ. As Paul pours out his heart to his young friend, he says, the love of money is the cause of many problems. At this point, we sense pain in Paul's words. Some, he says, incredulously, have even abandoned their faith in their pursuit of things. And by doing this, they have brought upon themselves many problems and much pain. In fact, in his second letter to Timothy, he names names. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. This present world always beckons to us 
to pay more attention to it than we do to our Lord. Paul is not alone in proclaiming that the glitter of bling sometimes blinds people, even Christian people. We can get spiritually sidetracked by all those things, things we want, things we think will add to our lives. Here are just a few reminders of what some others have said. James, the Lord's brother, wrote, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world renders himself an enemy of God. That is strong language, don't you agree? John, the disciple, wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. Again, that's strong language. But most important of all, remember the words of Jesus? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, I wish Paul would get off this because it's making me uncomfortable. The fact of the matter is, we in America, we in our culture, we are among the world's most wealthy citizens. And we must pay attention to what Paul says about its dangers. We return our attention to the words of Paul who speaks to Timothy with an intimate intensity. As for you, man of God, he's saying, what is expected of the Christian, of you and me? Listen to these secrets of happiness. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, according to the Apostle Paul, if we want to be happy, we need to shun money grubbing, pursue the right stuff which he listed for us, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life, Now, as Paul concludes his thought, he affirms that it isn't money that's the problem. We all know that a certain amount of the stuff is essential. 
we've got to have money to live, don't we? So it isn't money. Money can be beneficial. Money can provide things that we need. Money can add even to our influence in an appropriate way. Money can talk, people sometimes say. If you're like me, what it says is goodbye. <laughs> but there's a place for money. And Paul says, now, concerning those Christians who happen to be rich, money isn't the problem. These Christians are rich. But to them, he has some things to say. If you are well off as a Christian, do not be haughty. Don't think that you're somehow better off or better a better person than other people. Do not set hopes on riches that are uncertain. Don't put your faith in what you have. Do set your hopes on God who provides us with everything for our enjoyment, Paul says. Do good with your money, Paul says. Be generous. Be ready to share and store up treasure in the future where life is really life. As we've observed, we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. You can store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And as I conclude, I must ask an important question, a question that will determine much about our futures. Do we really believe what Paul has said to us today? Do we really believe that contentment brings happiness. And the more we focus on things, the more difficult it is to be content.